This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. This is Matt Mattern on Unite and Heal America. My guest today is Assemblymember Ash Kalra. And uh, thank you for being on the program, Assemblymember. It's great to have you here and looking forward to talking to you about a lot of issues facing California. I know you're on a number of different committees, uh, housing committee, labor and employment, transportation, water parks and wildlife. You've also have a history of working on criminal justice issues, the environment and uh, affordable housing. So a lot to talk about with you today. Thank you for uh, being on the program and bringing these issues to uh, our listeners down here in Southern California. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate you inviting me. It's great to be on here. I always like to introduce myself to folks uh, around my community, around the state, and uh, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of things that we need to work on in our in our communities. Now, one of the things that is uh, a pressing problem here in California, both in Southern California and Northern California, is the homeless crisis that we're facing. And one of the things that I've been working on is this California Homeless Stipend Program. And just for the listeners, if uh, they, some of them may have heard me talk about this before, but we'll talk about it again, which is it's a program that would have uh, people bring homeless people into their homes and pay them a monthly stipend of approximately $1,000 a month. And the goal would be to, to have people use their homes to help house homeless people that are currently living on streets and we currently have a need for for over 3.3 million new homes in the in the state of California, which is like a, a massive amount of new housing that that we need. And unfortunately, it would take years to build out that much housing. So it's not realistic that that we're going to have that amount of housing in the next few years. So the program that that we've been working on hopefully opens up some existing housing to get people off the streets. And uh, some of the questions that I've had people ask me as well, how do you know that those people would be ready to do this program? And uh, the social service agencies that are already in place would help funnel people into the system. They've been working with homeless people for years and know the population and know who would be ready and suitable candidates for this. So um, just wanted to get your take on that program and, and thoughts as to whether you uh, think it has viability or any changes that you would think that could be made to it to make it more effective. Well, I did get a chance to skim through the language and I think, um, but what I like about it is that it builds upon the idea of a phased in approach. To your point, we can't snap our fingers and have enough housing for everyone. But we also understand that you know, we can't just think about our our homelessness crisis as something that needs to be done over a five-year period because there are people struggling right now and suffering right now. We need immediate solutions. And so, for example, here in San Jose, and I know this has been happening around the state, whether it's you know, getting old hotels and motels or we've opened up several communities of tiny homes, but those aren't designed for our unhoused neighbors to be there for a year or two years, it's designed to be there three, four, five months at the most. So I really like this idea because it's, it's the next phase of that transition when someone has been taken off the streets, 
put in some kind of stable environment like a tiny home or a converted motel. But then I, I think getting a home, especially in the areas we live in where it's very expensive, where they can get a room and, and continue their journey to permanent housing. Uh, and I do like, I did notice in the language requires, I think, six months of a relationship with social workers. So the social workers really get to know who's suitable and ready for it. Uh, I also noticed and mentioned something about allowing sober living environments to be included as potentially accessing these funds. And what's critical about that, uh, my background before I ever got into elected office, I was a public defender for 11 years. I spent about half my time in the public defender's office in drug treatment court. And so what we would find is that people would get access to sober living environments or to residential treatment once they got in trouble and got arrested and got thrown in jail. Well, why can't we open up access to these sober living environments to those that want it but otherwise can't afford it? And so I think that's actually, when I saw that, I think that might be the most compelling aspect of this in the sense that it allows folks that really want help to get it without having to get arrested again, because now they have a little bit of assistance in trying to in being able to afford the sober living environment to get their life back on track. Right. Uh, yeah, I have some experience in that uh, community, and and uh, it's so important to have a safe place to to live, and that trying to get sober while living on the street is practically impossible. Yeah. So, so we, right. can't, we can't expect that the homeless population is going to get clean and sober on uh, living in a tent. It's, right. just, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's the housing first mentality, which you know, you've got to house someone, whether their issue is mental health issues, substance abuse, whether they can't get a job, whatever it might be, their health care issues, well, they're certainly not going to resolve it while they're living on the streets. Let's get a roof over the head. Let's show some morality and some compassion while giving them the support system they need through social services, through sober living environment, through, you know, counseling, through job training. That's how we're going to get ourselves out of this situation by showing compassion, but also having thoughtfulness behind it, not, you know, making sure those that are prepared and ready to be able to rent a room from someone's from a family in a family's home or a, a private residence, make sure they're prepared for that step because, Many of our unhoused communities, been, they've been on the street for years, and they're not ready uh, to simply just move into someone's home without that transitional phase of social work uh, support. Right. And uh, yeah, I love the idea that you had about uh, going from the tiny homes yeah. to living in a home environment. And, uh, you know, that, that would make it a, a more doable transition and the other thing, I was talking to uh, Senator Wykowski about this idea, and he was uh, telling me that in his studies of this, uh, that 30% of our the poorest of the poor own homes in California. So this would be an opportunity to get some money into the hands of poorer folks that have an asset, a home, but aren't are underutilizing it in terms of potentially getting some money in into their hands. So I think it's, it could be a real win-win situation to get money into the hands of, of many homeowners here in California who just are low income and, and they could use some help. It could be a good program for many people in that situation. I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, Senator Bikowski was the one that's pushed for a number of years on ADUs and, you know, the, the reality is that in single family home neighborhoods, it's really hard to add more housing. I mean, ADUs, granny units is one way, but your idea is another way of getting more people living in, the, in, in communities that otherwise um, are built out already. 
And especially if you have families that can add additional support to someone that uh, is moving into their home, I think part of it is not just having a roof over your head, it's being connected to a social community. And when you're part of a family or living with a family, you feel more connected to your community. And that helps whether it's your, you know, whether it's getting back on your feet in terms of getting a job, whether it's, you know, making sure that you're connecting with, you know, mental health professionals or, you know, your substance abuse treatment, you know, having that network. And a lot of our folks that are unhoused have lost that network, their family and all that over many years, and they feel so disconnected. And the only sense of community that they have is out on the streets, which is understandable. And those are, you know, they're living in encampments and those are the only people that look out for them and they look out for each other. Uh, and so we have to recognize that it's not as simple as asking someone, oh, do you want to get off the streets? We've got to give them a pathway for success too. Absolutely. And I, I also see this as a, an opportunity to reconnect families to a certain extent and that you might have somebody who's currently unhoused and they might have become disassociated with their family in part because of economic reason. They weren't able to contribute. And if they could come back and, and be of some uh, economic contribution, it might be lead to a pathway to uh, kind of reconciling and, and working you know, in that structure, which is, as you said, so important to having somebody get back into the mainstream. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of families go through a lot uh, with their loved ones, especially if they get involved with substance abuse. And it's a heavy burden to put on a family. But if that individual has gotten enough of enough support, um, reintegrating with family is such a huge part of one success story. But, you know, before you put that burden on the family, you can show, hey, this person's been working for us with a social worker for six months, nine months. Uh, we have them in a stable environment, whether it's a tiny home or some other kind of environment where they're getting regular and, and ongoing support. Uh, then, you know, the family, we're, we're, we're also giving support to the family. We're not just saying take back your loved one. We're also saying, hey, we've got them in a place where they can actually start making strides back to, to uh, rekindling those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, those are great programs that I think can help. Uh, one of the things that I, excites me about this program is that it's been successful in, in some test environments. They've, they've done this host homes program, both up in Northern California and down here in Southern California, and they've had, had great success with it. So I, I think that it is something that can roll out to a wider group and, and help alleviates the problem. I mean, it's not going to be just one silver bullet solves this problem, but it's it's one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, there's no one silver bullet, but you're definitely onto something. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, you know, hopefully we can get your support uh, in the legislative session that's uh, coming up uh, here. So uh, we're going to go to the break here. You're listening to KABC 790. I'm your host, Matt Matter on the Unite and Heal America program. Please uh, join us after the break. You're back uh, with Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. Today's guest is Assemblymember Ash Kalra, and uh, great to have you on the program. We were just talking about the homelessness issue. Uh, kind of just wanted to pivot with you a little bit to some other issues facing California, in particular the environment and the steps that we need to take moving forward to, you know, improve our environment here in California. And obviously it's even more challenging during the pandemic and the economic challenges and balancing 
the environment and the economy and and how do you uh, think we should be best doing that? Yeah, I, I think that the, it really isn't a matter of uh, mutually exclusive choices. I think that we can absolutely protect our environment and ensure that we have a vigorous economy at the same time. In fact, it is the clean energy, you know, greening of our economy that provides economic opportunities into the rest of the century more so than fossil fuels. And I think that as we see not just our own nation or our own state, but other nations around the world trying to find more and more technologies to allow them to wean themselves off of fossil fuels. In California, certainly here in Silicon Valley, we have a huge opportunity to provide that R&D to you know, really ensure our companies are successful in that new age technology that's going to allow us to do that. And so I, I don't think we have a choice. I think we have to protect our environment. I think the wildfires, we're seeing that. We're seeing issues of the pandemic, which also, and, you know, when we've seen more pandemics, the more we've encroached uh, upon otherwise um, undeveloped areas, whether it's the you know, uh, rainforest and other forested areas. And so I think we have to be more cognizant that our actions do have a reaction. And oftentimes that reaction uh, proves to be very damaging for us and, and for you know the, the rest of the planet. Right. I guess the, the, the question is, what's government's role in terms of deciding the technologies of the future? It's always difficult to, to know which technology is really the right technology. Uh, take, for instance, is it, you know, is, should we be putting more emphasis on wind or we should be putting more emphasis on solar or should we be putting more emphasis on hydrogen power? Uh, when the state steps in and starts making those decisions, um, there's questions as to whether or not they're the best uh, party to be making those decisions. Yeah. That's a fair point. I, you don't want to put your thumb on the scale too much, but you know I, I think we we do have opportunities to encourage research. Just similarly with our medical research and pharmaceuticals, there's NIH grants to look at certain ailments. I think similarly, you know, the government has invested in research uh, across the board in terms of uh, innovative technologies, and, I, and ultimately, you know, it's the private sector. And this this is actually a perfect industry if you think about it in terms of public and private partnership where the public sector, the government, uh, both in terms of incentives as well as in terms of contracting, can truly incentivize the demand for cleaner technology and allow the private sector to perfect it to the best extent possible. And we've seen that a lot. I mean, if you think about it, there was a lot of subsidies earlier on in the solar industry. And now, you know, solar technology and how much more efficient solar panels is, um, it's, it's magnitudes, orders of magnitudes more efficient um, in terms of energy creation than even 15 or 20 years ago. And so you do have that spurring by the public sector and by the by, by government, but you don't have the government saying, okay, this is the technology that's going to be the winning technology. That's got to be done by the scientists and ultimately, you know, by what they're able to achieve and get out into the private sector, uh, into the commercial market to see what's feasible. It's one thing to have the technology, you have to also be able to show you can get it out there. And so I do think that some of the incentives, whether it's clean energy, clean you know, clean vehicle incentives, solar incentives have been great. I mean, I think that they've allowed the technology to spread and the, the more the technology spreads, the more you can scale back any kind of public incentives as the, uh, the market takes over, so to speak, in terms of which technologies are really the ones that went out because there used to be like a thousand solar panel companies. 
you know, that's all just like back in the day, there were a thousand automakers and it slowly narrows down to those that do it the best. And so uh, that initial um, research, the initial incentives, I think are important um, to give the private sector a reason why they, they would want to invest in that R&D. Well, that uh, kind of pivots potentially to an area that's, uh, that goes to more free trade, which is uh, it seems as though the Chinese government has been backing its companies regarding solar technology and really running American companies out of this, uh, this market. So what are we going to do to kind of protect California companies to, uh, so that they can continue to be market leaders? Yeah, we've seen a huge amount of investment from uh, the Chinese government. As we've seen, we've seen a, a whole lot of investment from the German government into their companies. Uh, and, and I think that there are a number of things that can be done. One is um, if public subsidies are used to make sure that the products that are being used are sourced from responsible companies. Uh, and that goes to where the products are being sourced from. It goes to labor and, and work environment and workers' rights. And I think you can absolutely have incentives for you know, California-made products uh, as long as um, it's an open market for everyone to compete. Uh, there are some federal regulations that keep us from saying you can only give to American made, but there are ways you can incentivize. And I think, you know, there, uh, I, and I'll give you an example, a little bit of different arena, but I have a bill I'm introducing called the Tropical Deforestation Free Procurement Act. It's a, it's a, it's actually the um, Deforestation Free Procurement Act this year because we added boreal forests. But in uh, a, a quick snippet is that basically companies that we contract with for commodities as a state, whether it's furniture or food, whatever it might be, the companies we contract with have to ensure they're not contributing to tropical deforestation. And so that's going to incentivize um, companies to use domestically made products because you can you can be sure domestically made products are not contributing uh, to those kinds of issues. So similarly, I think there are ways we can incentivize without saying we're targeting China or any other company or country we can simply say these are the standards that we expect out of the products that we're going to put our money into as a state. And what that does, it gives a market advantage to the private sector companies that get these big government contracts. Now they have a market advantage in scaling up their private sector commercial market as well. So it's a little complicated because the federal government regulations and rules don't allow us to strictly be able to say, OK, we want you know, only California made and no one else can compete. But there are things that we can do that. Uh, put an emphasis on the kinds of products that are being used, um, the, the treatment of workers, no child labor is already something that we have in, you know, obviously. Um, and so those are, there are ways that we can go about it. Yeah, I, I know that um, we should be looking kind of at the federal level for some uh, additional guidance on this. I, my, uh, I wanted to back up a plan where essentially if, if a Chinese company was violating um, environmental standards in creating a product or using um, labor that was really sub-minimum wage, that uh, they would be hit with a tariff because uh, essentially they're not competing on a fair plane with our companies that are meeting environmental standards and meeting labor standards, that it really is unfair. And so that then it would it would essentially even the playing field so American companies can compete on the same uh, playing field as whether it's a Chinese company or, or any 
any uh, in India or Germany or wherever it is, we shouldn't be kind of subsidizing polluters because uh, not only is it, uh, you know, creating pollution in other areas, if they're relying upon coal fired energy, we're also killing our own jobs by letting that company in that country uh, subsidize their products by using it in an environmentally uh, unfriendly manner. So yeah, I agree. I, you know, look, I got the obstacle in that, because I totally agree, uh, is these companies. I mean, so many American companies are profiting far more, you know, profited greatly by outsourcing their manufacturing. And whenever we try to put some kind of stringent controls, those same companies, um, you know, try will we'll defeat efforts to do it. And that goes to the issue of not only, you know, because I certainly support, you know, a transition. I, I call it a just transition. So when we talk about the Green New Deal and what have you. I think that we have to think about the jobs, you know, because the fossil fuel jobs, you know, those are a lot of good paying jobs. So I understand why the building trades and other folks whose members have put their kids through college on those jobs are wary about losing those jobs. So the, the green technology jobs also should be good quality jobs. And I think we're, we'll, we will be able to achieve it if we can push back on these companies that are just looking at the bottom line. And that goes to the influence and the inordinate influence of corporate money and, and, and just money in general uh, into our political system. And so it gets really hard to get these things through because of it's, it's I like to refer to it as uh, as legal corruption because there's nothing illegal about it, but at the end of the day, it's having a tremendous impact on our ability to do what we know is right. And what you're saying, I agree with. Can I, you know, would I, would I be able to do that realistically? It would be really hard to do because of, again, the influence uh, in our political system. Yeah, I, I think that it is a, it's a pretty powerful influence. I, I know uh, that a similar bill had been introduced in California a few years back and it, and it died. Uh, I think it would be challenging to have it passed as a, a statewide piece of legislation. It really needs to be a federal piece of legislation so that every state is playing uh, on the same, from the same set of rules. And uh, yeah. America needs to speak with one voice on that issue for us to, to make it work. It, it makes it tough. And I'll just quote you know, one last thing on this point. It makes it tough because I think that the reality is that California could lead on those issues. Um, but again, every time we try, they'll say, well, you're putting us at a disadvantage. Uh, but if we don't lead, then it's not happening in DC. So it's really, it's a, it's a tough balancing act in that sense. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel that, uh, California has had a leadership role and, and it's not leading just the, the United States, but it's also leading the world in a lot of ways. And I think that it's, it's showing the rest of the world and, and the rest of the United States that you can have a clean and good economy at the same time. And that's, that's a valuable lesson for everybody to, to learn is that it, our, our economic growth exceeded the national average. So it shows that you can do both effectively. So uh, we're going to uh, take a break now. You've been listening to KBC 790, the Unite and Heal America program. I'm Matt Mattern, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everyone. 
This is Matt Matter, I'm back with you on Unite and Heal America. I've got uh, Assemblymember Ash Kalra, and uh, thank you everybody for joining me, and uh, thank you Assemblymember for being here. I wanted to uh, talk to you about uh, some of your prior work on the environment uh, and AB 3030, if you can explain kind of to the listeners what that is about and uh, what happened as a result of your efforts. Sure, yeah. So AB 3030, uh, we introduced last year, and uh, the goal um, was to protect uh, 30% of our land and water by 2030, which is a number we just didn't come up with out of uh, thin air. It's a number that many bioscientists um, around the world have indicated uh, is a target that most countries should aim for uh, in order to protect our biodiversity around the world and combat climate change and what have you. And so I introduced it. It was well received. Unfortunately, it didn't make it all the way all the way to the governor's desk. But the good news is that the governor adopted an executive order, essentially adopting um, the the main uh, focus of the bill to protect 30% of our land and water. And then in the last couple of weeks, um, President Biden has also indicated that he's going to set a federal target um, similar to our uh, 30% goal. And so. Start, it started with a bill uh, that I authored here in California just a few months ago, and now it looks like the federal government is setting that similar target nationally. And so it does show that in California, when we um, put something forward, uh, especially as it applies to issues like the environment, that we really can't influence uh, the rest of the nation and the world. And um, it's, it's just exciting to see that. And it really allows an opportunity for us to continue to think big in terms of what we can do to, to protect our environment, you know, clean energy, as we've discussed, and other areas of importance. Right. Uh, I, I know of one uh, thing like that, uh, where uh, at the time Governor Schwarzenegger was uh, in power, he, he through, I think, executive order created the hydrogen uh, mm-hmm. rollout and for hydrogen fueling stations and, and statewide. And, and previously there had been restrictions on allowing hydrogen fuel to, to you know, there was still this kind of fear that it would be another Hindenburg. And, and, uh, and that was in 2004 or something. And only recently do we now see the prevalence of more hydrogen cars. I actually happen to have a hydrogen car, so I'm kind of a big proponent of it. And, uh, and feel like the, the state can do even more to, to press uh, more infrastructure for those stations and to encourage that because I, I think that it's even cleaner than electric cars because you don't even have a battery. Uh, and there's a lot of states that, that can't put even hydrogen stations in their state because of the regulations that they have, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. That, yeah, uh, I think there is that fear. I think you're right on that. Uh, the infrastructure is pretty expensive. Hydrogen stations are pretty expensive. I do think that we do have opportunity. And the other aspect of hydrogen is how you're making the hydrogen. But I think if you combined the, the greening of the sourcing of the hydrogen, uh, and so you use green sources um, to create the hydrogen, and then uh, you, you think of creative ways to distribute it, uh, beyond just having stationary stations, because I think there's an opportunity for mobile fueling um, you know, with hydrogen, again, you know, making sure it's done safely. But um, I, I think that 
the more we move away from a fixed station concept, even for for gas, um, as we as we have now, um, the better it is for the environment. And so, you know, if we can figure out a way to get the hydrogen more evenly distributed around the state, uh, that would be great. Because I, I was actually on the air district here, the, the Bay Area Quality Management District, and I chaired it uh, even for a year. And, and even back then, there's a few years ago, uh, we were trying to push for more uh, resources to to build uh, hydrogen stations, but we weren't getting enough takers because it is very expensive and there's inherent risks in it. Uh, and so we're hoping that we can continue to get more incentives from CARB as well as an improvement in the technology, because I would love to see more um, hydrogen stations and more hydrogen vehicles. I think you're right. Um, that's definitely the next generation that is going to prove to be um, far more effective than any other technology we've had. Right. And it, and it, like you said earlier, it takes a bit of a kickstart from the government because industry uh, a lot of times doesn't want to take that risk. And, and then once there's some infrastructure, industry starts investing more into it, like Toyota has invested a ton of money into hydrogen uh, and they have a hundred year plan. Well, they're they're pretty committed to it, but it would certainly help to have the government fund a bit of the infrastructure to make that work because it's a it's a good clean technology for everybody um, and it's uh, certainly we've invested and in a lot of money in the in uh, the oil business as a society over the last uh, hundred plus years it's uh, it would only be fair to kind of uh, give some of those same advantages to new greener technologies yeah no, I agree and, and there are, you know, the, the, the stations, at least here in the Bay Area, um, that have been built, have been built using some public subsidy, but it's not nearly enough because these are very expensive stations to build. Uh, and so we want to make sure we continue to incentivize it. Uh, again, you know, it, as, as you mentioned, you know, 2004, uh, it takes many years to, to get these technologies up and running commercially viable. Uh, you know, solar wasn't, you know, there were solar panels in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but it took you know a good two decades before you really started to to see it more uh, commercially spread out and become viable. Hopefully, we don't have to wait that long, uh, that much longer for hydrogen because, as you said, when you have major manufacturers like Toyota on board, that really really helps uh, it helps the process. And so, I'm fully on board and support it. And hopefully, we can get uh, more of that infrastructure built out. One thing in terms of uh, we talked about solar a bit and. And whether or not does it, whether it makes sense to have kind of all new home developments have solar and to uh, kind of power themselves in whole or in part through uh, solar power is that is that something we should be pushing or is that going to add to the cost of new housing such that uh, we then affect our uh, build out of new housing. I think that if you're if you're at least requiring the electrical uh, hookups to be prepared for installation of solar, uh, I, I think it's you know, it's the cheapest time to actually put that in place when the home is built. Uh, it costs a lot more to do it after the fact, and so I think that get, you know given the incentives that are in place at least currently uh, for putting solar uh, on one's roof. I think that um, the cost is relatively nominal uh, if you're in, if you're including it in the initial building of a home as opposed to a retrofit, and so um, I, I don't I don't think I think especially now I don't think the 
the burden is as great as it may have been 20 years ago. And so I, I think that we should give every opportunity uh, for individuals to be able to put solar on their homes. There are some developments that are just doing it outright and putting solar on all their homes and just building it into the cost. Uh, but I think the happy medium is to at least make sure the connections and the electrical is done to allow for solar. And then the individual homeowner can decide if they want to make that additional investment using whatever government subsidy uh, credits, the tax credits and so on may exist. Would it, have there uh, been any moves towards making it mandatory that uh, all new homes in California get solar? And, and what uh, what are your thoughts about that? I don't know if there's a current, um, there's current legislation. Again, I think the, the, what, what I've heard, what people have discussed, it have been, has been more about requiring uh, the electrical infrastructure to be put in place uh, as opposed to requiring panels themselves. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I don't know if there's a current bill this year, for example, or if, if CARB is looking at any regulations that will require it at this time. Right. In some ways, I think that it, it, it is maybe a bullet that we should bite and, and uh, make it mandatory because uh, it is the easiest time to install solar is when somebody builds something. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some expense to it and maybe there's some, if, it's, if they're building low cost homes or, or homes that are for lower income people, maybe there's some governmental subsidy of it uh, if they're building mansions in Beverly Hills, obviously there doesn't need to be a government subsidy because they're already um, capable of, of bearing that cost. Yeah, and if, there, if, you know, if that's true, as well as the uh, the advantage of um, buying in bulk. So if you have a developer that's building 800 or 1,000 homes and they know they have to put solar on each of them, obviously they can, they can cut a deal with the uh, a solar manufacturer and really drive that cost down, uh, the per unit cost. Uh, and I think that that, that further um, that, that fur, further lightens the burden on the purchaser. And so I, I think that we definitely need to go in that direction. Um, and the resistance is exactly what you said, that uh, there's resistance from, resistance from home builders, uh, that they don't want to you know, price out folks. They don't, they don't want to have to add any more to the price tag of homes which are already price here in California. What's your understanding of what that cost would be of uh, putting some solar on, on a new home? I don't know. Uh, I think it would depend on how many panels and, and so on. So I, I imagine it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be less than $10,000 I'd imagine. But again, if there's a, as you indicated, if there's some government assistance, either on the energy side or on the infrastructure side, uh, or, or if you have a, a development where they're building many homes at one time, uh, they could probably get a reduced cost as well. But um, yeah, ten to $15,000, I imagine at the low end would be added to the cost, but that could be driven down if you're, if you're, if you're doing it across an entire development too. Right. And well, it, it is a, an added value to the home. So it's not just a, a, a drain on the homeowner in that it would reduce their energy costs month to month. So there is some benefit to the homeowner to have, have that on their house. Yeah, absolutely. You're here with us on Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter. My guest is Assemblymember Ash Kalra, and uh, you've been listening to us. So we will be back from a break in just a minute.
Hi, everyone. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern on KABC 790. My guest is Assemblymember Ash Kelra, and uh, we're talking about a number of issues facing California, one of which is uh, criminal justice reform. And Assemblymember, you're uniquely positioned to talk about this issue as you were a public defender for 11 years. Uh, what uh, what are you working on in this on this front and what should we be doing? One of the big issues regarding criminal justice uh, in general, and we've seen this play out over the last year with the protests and with you know, calls for justice, and it's really an equity issue when, when there are folks in our community that don't feel like the system sees them the same way or treats them the same way. And certainly we've heard that with the Black Lives Matter movement. But, uh, and if you, if you look at the data, uh, it shows that our criminal justice system treats people differently depending not only on race, but depending on wealth. And, how, and other uh, kind of so, social factors. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we have a system that is just and fair for everyone, the, the victims, the accused, uh, and, and our communities, to keep our communities safe, but also to make sure that me- members in our community don't feel like they're uh, being treated differently uh, or unfairly targeted by a system that they don't always see uh, as equitable. And so, um, I had a bill, the Racial Justice Act, that was signed into law this past year. And it's unique in that um, there's other state that has this. Uh, it, what it does is it allows the defense attorney to, to challenge an arrest or the conduct during a trial, a conviction, or sentencing based on race. Now, what it doesn't do, it doesn't let someone off the hook. What it does do, it allows them to challenge if they're being treated differently because of their race. And so, um, for example, for the same, for a similar crime, if a black defendant is being sentenced to twice the amount of time um, that then a similarly situated white defendant, they can at least raise the issue and have a judge take a look at it and see if that argument has merits. Uh, and, and so uh, it allows us an opportunity to get to the systemic issues that we know are prevalent in our criminal justice system, but to do it in a thoughtful way that empowers our judges to actually look at it on a case-by-case basis to determine if there was any bias that played a role in the outcome of the case. Well, that's important. Obviously, we need to have fairness and we need to have the appearance of fairness because every citizen in California deserves equal justice under the law. And to the extent that that has not been delivered in California, as well as the rest of the country, that's obviously against everything we stand for as a country. So I applaud your efforts to try to even the playing field so that everyone in our state feels that they're they're treated equally as a citizen. That's, that's uh, fundamental. Yeah, I, I think it'll build more trust in the system as well. Uh, and I think, you know, going back to how we started the conversation, talking about housing those that are unhoused and what have you, you know, a lot of folks that get into trouble with the law you know, they need support and help to get their life back on track. And, you know, oftentimes they're never offered support on, unless or until they're involved in the criminal justice system, which is you know, the least efficient way to deliver support and help to someone. Uh, similarly, you know, with healthcare, you don't want someone seeking healthcare by going into an emergency room. Again, the costliest, least efficient way uh, to deliver healthcare to folks. And so I think that we do need to think about how we can bring support to individuals when they need it. So when they're young, going through school, if they have a healthcare issue, how do we make sure we resolve that so they don't go into debt 
or end up homeless or doing things just to you know pay for their prescription drugs or to pay for surgery. I actually had a client once that was involved in a, uh, a robbery at a gas station. He was literally trying to get money to help pay for the cost of his wife's surgery because they didn't have insurance and he had been laid off about a month or two earlier. And so these are real scenarios, real situations that Yes, you know, no one will excuse the behavior and you shouldn't excuse the behavior, you know, for putting other people in danger, but we have to understand where that behavior comes from and are there better ways to resolve uh, the dilemmas that people are in other than the expensive and oftentimes inequitable criminal justice system or the paralleling into our healthcare system, you know, or the expensive emergency room or having someone start a GoFundMe account just to pay for a surgery or to pay for, for something that they otherwise can't afford. What do we do as to a society to kind of stem those things at the beginning and, you know, help uh, people so that they don't actually get into that position, mm-hmm. particularly young people yeah. who, who might da- start down the wrong path? Uh, any particular legislative or measures that uh, you think could, could help young people to, to avoid those kind of problems? You know, it's interesting because, you know, we're hearing the term and a lot of people don't like the term of defund the police. And I, and, and I, I mentioned that because really it's about where do you prioritize your resources? So it's not a matter of saying we want to get rid of, you know, people want to get rid of police departments. We want to make sure there are no more police officers. Well, no, that's not the approach. It's, for example, in our schools, rather than spending millions of dollars to have police officers on the campus, if that same amount of money can be used for mental health professionals, for counselors, for psychologists, for, for you know, dispute resolution, to teach different tools and skills to our young people so they don't get in trouble with the law and end up in the criminal justice system. Similarly, you're seeing in jurisdictions around the country, we're seeing it, I know in San Francisco, I think LA started doing some of this where they're sending mental health professionals instead of police officers when there's a call for service. Uh, because as much, you know, but we're asking too much of our police officers, frankly. We're asking them to be able to, be able to handle everything. And the reality is they can't and, and they shouldn't, you know, and, and not every problem um, should be responded to with someone with a badge and a gun. That sometimes you, you there, there's a reason why people get degrees in psychology. There's a reason why people become social workers. They learn certain skills to respond to certain issues. Obviously, if in a situation gets dangerous or violent, then yes, of course, you call the police. But I think most of situations that arise can be resolved in, in ways that, um, provide services, especially to young people, to your point. Uh, But I think in general, we have an opportunity to rethink public safety in a way that uh, makes us safer, frankly, without involving more cost and more heartache. Yeah, I read uh, recently that Camden, New Jersey had gone to a a program where they had reduced the amount of funding for the police department and and uh, kind of rehired everybody at lower salaries and then essentially had more social work type officers and they had uh, been very effective at reducing the crime rate in in Camden New Jersey after they did this so uh, I, I hear what you're saying that there could be different ways that we allocate resources and and uh, serve the community more effectively because so a lot of times we as community kind of get going in one direction you think okay this is the way we have to work on this particular problem and uh, every every problem to somebody with a hammer looks uh, like a nail so that's right yeah in fact i when i went to visit 
uh, Finland uh, and Norway, we visited some of the prisons there and the innovative things they've done. You know, Norway used to have a very large uh, incarcerated population. Uh, they completely turned it around. And when, he, when I went to visit them, the deputy warden, the presentation before we toured the prison said, our goal as soon as someone comes in here is to, tr- is to make them a good neighbor because they're going to go out, get out. We want to make sure we give them the tools necessary to improve their lives. So when they get out, uh, they won't come back in again and they won't harm anyone again and they can live a, a productive life, become a taxpaying you know, citizen. And um, you know, I, I think that's a really good way to think of it. Uh, and a lot of the, in fact, the prison guards were retrained, not just for security, but essentially as social workers. They would sit and have meals with them, play games, play cards with the inmates, a very different mentality. And that created a sense of trust, but also a, a, a sense of respect and of self-worth for the incarcerated so that when they got released, they, they, they could see something other than just going back to prison or a life of crime. Well, I, I was talking to somebody recently and they were citing to me that somebody who is uh, homeless, who gets out of prison is eight times more likely to uh, violate parole or go back into uh, the criminal justice system than somebody who's housed. And, and uh, one of the things that we've got to do a better job of is making sure that people coming out of the criminal justice system are kind of put on their feet so that they can succeed because obviously having them get back into the criminal justice system is extraordinarily expensive and and not good for them and not good for society as a whole. Yeah, that's just on point with the bill that I'm co-authoring from the summit member, David Chu, the chair of our housing committee. Uh, we, we already have a goal and the governor stated a goal of closing two to three prisons. It'll save us a whole lot of money, you know, potentially billions in the years ahead. And so the idea is to use some of that money uh, for housing for those that are released from prison. 100% to your point, make sure when they come out, they actually have a stable place to live uh, and don't have a reason to reoffend because they're out in the streets and can't find a way to survive. Right. I, I worked with an organization here in L.A. that that does that with longtime uh, inmates who are coming back out of the system and trying to get their lives back together and they they house them and they help give job retraining and and things like that because you know people who've been in the criminal justice system for 20 plus years have kind of i mean they're, they're landing into a wholly different world than the one they left so um we need to do a, a better job at having them land on their feet because it's certainly better for everybody if they do yep i so, think um, well, it's been a pleasure having you on the uh, program, Assembly Member, and uh, sharing with us, sharing with the audience all the things that you're working on. We know there's a lot of important work uh, being done up in Sacramento, and uh, we wish you all the best in, in working on those uh, projects that uh, you're working on. And certainly, um, to the extent that uh, you can lend any support to this uh, California Homeless Stipend Program, uh, we'd love to get your uh, support on that one as well. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for having me on the show. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Certainly keep me in the loop on that, Bill. And uh, I just appreciate the fact that uh, you care enough about these issues to, to have these in-depth conversations with us. And you're clearly doing the work on the ground as well. And for that, I'm grateful. Well, thanks again for being here, and uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. I'm Matt Mattern, and this is KABC 790. 
Have a great week, everybody. We'll look forward to having you back on the program or listening to the program next week. This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.